Welcome to Behind the Knife's Absite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated Absite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, behindthenife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day and dominate the Absite. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligature Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the MaxTac Motorized Fixation Device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Sonicision Curved Jaw Cordless Ultrasonic Device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Okay, behind the knife, absite review. Today's topic is thoracic. So, Kevin, let's go through, let's just get started and go through some high yield anatomy. The anatomy of the lung, left versus right. How many lobes are on the left versus the right? Yeah, so I'm partial as a righty to the right, and so that's greater. So it's three versus two. The right lung has three lobes, the left lobe has two. Okay. How about the um, lymph nodes? We talk about lymph nodes. What's a good way to remember lymph node stations? Yeah, so the single-digit ones are the mediastinal. The double-digit ones are the hilar lymph nodes. Okay, so those single-digit uh, lymph node stations, those are going to be in the midline and the mediastinal. As you get further out into the hilum and uh, lung, those are your double-digit lymph nodes. It's unlikely you're going to get a specific question about specific lymph node stations, but it's worth taking a, a, a peek at the, the, a picture of the lymph node station and, and in general familiarize yourself. What about the thoracic duct? Can you chart out the full course of the thoracic duct for me? Okay. So the cisterna chile is at L2. It crosses at T5 from the right to the left and empties in to the junction of the left internal jugular and the subclavian veins. Okay. Yep. That's right. L2 crosses T5 from right to left, empties into the left internal jugular and subclavian veins. Okay. How about the azagous vein? Where does the azagous vein drain into? So that drains into the superior vena cava. Okay. Well, what's a good just memory trick for where to find the thoracic duct between two structures? Yeah. So you find it between, uh, please excuse my English, but the two gooses. So the azagous vein and the esophagus. Yeah, the two gooses. I love it. Azagous and esophagus. Perfect. Okay. Where do, so in relation to the nerves that travel along the mediastinum, so the phrenic nerve and the vagus nerve, where did those nerves run in relation to the hilum of the lung? And how do you remember that? So the phrenic nerve is anterior and the vagus nerve is posterior. Yeah. So you can think about this, if you think about it alphabetically, so A before P, anterior before posterior, and P is before V. So the phrenic is anterior before vagus, which is posterior. It can be a useful trick to help you remember those. Okay. 
can I interrupt for one second? I just wanted to do two clinical correlations here. As far as when we do left carotid subclavian bypasses, or you're doing, say, maybe a left first rib resection, that's when you worry about that thoracic duct. It's always on the left side because that's where it connects, uh, not on the right side. So the right side's a little safer in that way. And that's why it always seems like all your cases end up being left because then you're stressed out. Um, never seems to be on the right side. And then as far as the phrenic in the vagus the phrenic runs on the pericardium on top of the heart right so it's way more anterior than the vagus which runs with the carotid so just if you that can help you remember that like just if you think to your anatomy dissections and things like the phrenic runs on top of the heart and the vagus runs deep with the carotid certainly it's way easier to remember this stuff if there's a clinical correlation for it so thanks okay what about the so we're talking we're talking about the mediastinum what are the boundaries of the mediastinum yeah, so you have the sternum anteriorly, the vertebrae posteriorly, and the pleura laterally. And then you have the thoracic inlet superiorly and the diaphragm inferiorly. Yeah, great. Pretty straightforward. It makes sense if you just position yourself inside the mediastinum and pretend like you're looking around. What structures are you going to see? When we talk about pneumocytes of the lung, sometimes this is a question, at least it used to be a question. There's a type 1 and a type 2. What's important to remember about those? Yeah, so type 1, the primary function is gas exchange. Type 2, this is it, where it makes the surfactant. Yeah, and that phosphatidylcholine is that primary component of the surfactant. So that's a question I've seen asked before is which type of pneumocyte makes surfactant, and as well as what that component is. So make sure you remember that. Okay, how about with the pores of con? What are the pores of con? So these are the pores in the alveoli that enable direct air exchange. Okay, and a good analog structure, if you think about it in the right way, is that space of discs in the hepatic or in the liver. So hepatocytes interact directly with the sinusoids. Well, in the lung, it's those pores of con that enable uh, direct gas exchange. Okay, some things that are important to know when working up patients for a potential uh, lung resection is some different functional definitions. We get this information from our pulmonary function test. So preoperatively, What's the workup of a patient who are you considering for a lobectomy? What numbers do you, you need to see for a lobectomy? Yeah, so you want their FEV1 or their DLCO to be greater than 80%. And their postoperative predictive FEV1 and DLCO to be greater than 40%. Okay, so yeah, so those numbers, again, FEV1, DLCO greater than 8%, and postoperative predictive FEV1 and DLCO greater than 40%. What if it's, what if it's marginal, that the postoperative predictive? Yeah, so then you can do your VQ scan, which will show the contribution of the diseased lungs. Okay, so yeah, if marginal or if questionable, VQ scan. Okay, something we'll see with, let's say you have a patient who has a pleural effusion and you tap it. One thing we like to look at is figure out whether this is exudative versus transudative. And Kevin, what's that criteria called and what are the character, or what are the components of, of that criteria? Yeah, I remember studying this on my medicine rotation, believe it or not. But So you have your pleural to serum protein ratio is greater than 0.5 is more likely to be exudative. If the pleural to serum LDH ratio is greater than 0.6, you're leaning towards exudative. Or if the pleural LDH is greater than two-thirds of normal serum LDH, you're thinking exudative. Okay, great. So yeah, that's our lights criteria. Certainly very clinically useful and also important to know for test-taking purposes. So with regard to pleural effusions and empyema, what are some 
causes of either a pleural fusion or an empyema? What kind of patients do we see these in? Yeah. So in general, you're going to see patients that have increased permeability of the pleura in the capillaries. So this is seen in sepsis, malignancy, and pancreatitis. You can also see it in patients with increased hydrostatic pressure, such as CHF or CKD. And you can also see it in hypoalbuminemia patients that have cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome, or malnutrition. Okay. And how, let's say you have a patient you suspect of, I mean, they have some shortness of breath and clinical uh, history is consistent with either a pleural fusion or an empyema. What kind of imaging would you get and what are you looking for on that imaging? So you're going to do a chest x-ray and it's going to show blunting of the costophrenic angle and you're going to see visible effusion on the upright film if it's greater than 300 milliliters. Yeah, that's important. So you actually need, generally need a pretty significant amount to see it on that chest x-ray to see that effusion, 300 mLs. And you can also see, you'll see the outline of the fissures. So you might see some fluid in the fissures. That's another thing you can look for on the chest x-ray. What about ultrasound? What would you see on ultrasound? So you'll see fluid in the pleural space with loss of inspiratory sliding. Okay, great. And then a lot of times we'll get a CT scan of the chest. And what, how is that useful? How is a CT useful? Yeah, so a simple effusion will be homogenous. Most are posterior and inferior, whereas an empyema would be loculated and heterogeneous. Okay. Treatment for, let's start with the pleural effusion. What's the treatment for a pleural effusion? Yeah. So these, generally you manage them conservatively. You treat the underlying cause unless they're very symptomatic and then you can consider a drain. Yeah, there's some controversy there. Some people are more aggressive than others as far as draining pleural effusions. But certainly you want to figure out why, What's the, you, you want to think about what the underlying cause is and make sure you're reversing that. And then you, you, having an effusion in a patient puts, sets them up for getting an infected effusion. And so you have to look at the whole picture and decide whether or not you're going to drain it. But the key there is, is cor- correct that underlying cause. Okay, how about a, a patient that you suspect of having an empyema? Yeah, so for this patient, you're going to give antibiotics, you're going to drain, and then you're going to decorticate if it's needed. Yeah, and there's a whole evolution of empyemas as they go through their various phases, and it's going to depend on the timing. Certainly, these patients can be very sick. They need resuscitation, they need antibiotics, you need to get drainage. They can be difficult to drink. They're often loculated. So uh, at times that requires infusions of lytics through the chest tube uh, versus or in combination with a uh, surgical decortication. A little bit more than we likely need to get into right now. But another thing we often see, in, especially in the setting of trauma, are things like retained hemothorax. But what's the management for retained hemothorax? Yeah, so for retained hemothorax, you start with a chest tube. If that fails, then you can consider a VATS or a thoracotomy for washout. Yeah. Again, a lot of these decision-making processes are pretty nuanced and difficult to really get into and beyond the scope of this discussion. Uh, But it's going to depend on the patient, their presentation, the timing as to how aggressive you're going to be, whether or not you're going to treat these with drainage alone versus VATS or thoracotomy or surgical washout and, and decortication. But let's move on to chylothorax. So how do you diagnose a chylothorax? Yeah. So these are patients that are going to have a lung that's full of fluid and you're going you're gonna to tap it and it's going to have a milky white fluid. There's going to be heavy triglycerides in it. So generally greater than 110 milligrams per deciliter with a lymphocyte predominance. The Sudan red stain will be positive. Okay. What are the most common etiologies of a chylothorax? 
So 50% are due to malignancy, such as lymphoma. And then, um, so for the other 50%, there, it, the, I actually saw a patient in real life that had a pregnancy-induced one, believe it or not. So trauma or iatrogenic are some of the most common. And generally, you're going to see this once the patients start taking a diet, and then they're going to have that fluid collection occur in the lung. Okay, great. So yeah, you have certainly have to worry about malignancy. Malignancy is a big cause of a chylothorax. And then we do see it in iatrogenic or in a trauma, not infrequently as well. And as you say, it is heavily correlated with oral intake. And so this is something that's frequently tested is the management of a chylothorax. What's first line management for a chylothorax? Yes, this is actually just recently on my general surgery recertifying exam, a similar question. Um, and so the first line is conservative management with a low fat, medium chain fatty acid diet or bowel rests with TPN if high volume or persistent leak on the oral diet, yeah. plus or minus a chest tube, plus or minus octreotide. Yeah. So the thing is you want to avoid those long chain fatty acids. So medium chain fatty acid diet and see what it does. And if it's not slowing down or still problems, then you may need to go to uh, NPO with TPN. And then obviously you need to drain these. We can't just let Kyle accumulate in, in the chest. So frequently we'll need some sort of drainage. And you can even add octreotide if you're still having trouble getting it under control. So let's say you do all those things and they're failing. What's the next step? Conservative interventions fail. You can do a ligation of the thoracic duct and the low right mediastinum, or you can consider a talc pleuridesis and possible chemo radiation for malignancy. Okay. Yeah. So in, in general, ligation, if you're, you're failing ligation, of, they're failing conservative measures, you've tried everything, you can do a surgical ligation of the thoracic duct, again, in that low right mediastinum. And then there is uh, other options that you can try, talc pleuridesis and potential chemoradiation if the underlying cause is malignancy. Okay, so let's move on. Kevin, let's say you have a young, tall male. He's a basketball player. Yeah, he occasionally smokes some marijuana, but he presents to you because he, he has uh, some shortness of breath, and he suddenly felt some chest pain while with a deep inspiration. What, what are you thinking? Yeah, so this is very classic for the primary spontaneous pneumothorax, and these are due to apical subpleural blebs. Yeah, classically, these are in, in, in tall um, individuals, tall, lengthy individuals, the spontaneous pneumothorax, as you say, from those ap apical uh, blebs. Um, so how do you treat this? Yeah, so you can start with just a small, ga small gauge chest tube or pigtail. Yeah, in general, there are even places that if they're less than two centimeters, less than three centimeters, different cutoffs, you don't always have to, and they're stable on a chest x-ray, you don't always have to drain these. You can manage them conservatively without drainage. There's people that will aspirate them uh, with IR, but certainly spontaneous pneumothorax and uh, most of these patients are going to get a chest tube of some sort. And there certainly is a trend for going for smaller and smaller gauge chest tubes and even um, using uh, pigtail catheters are, are very effective and can uh, save that patient the morbidity of a large chest tube. So in general, yeah, drainage with a small chest tube or pigtail, although just be aware that there are uh, guidelines out there um, and there are even ones that you would manage without any type of drainage. Um, I said, we, now we, you said primary spontaneous uh, pneumothorax. What's the difference between primary and secondary pneumothorax? 
Yeah. Secondary is due to an underlying medical condition, such as COPD being the most common, also asthma, cystic fibrosis, infection, malignancy, connected tissue disease, or congenital. Great. Yeah. So that's a good distinction between the primary and secondary. For those, again, for those primary pneumothoraces, once they're drained, see how they do. And then it's a conversation at that point. If it's the first occurrence, they don't have a, a high risk profession. Those don't always need surgery, but certainly if they're a high risk profession or it's recurrent, those patients will go for a VAT, a blood back to me and pleurodesis. But again, that's a little bit outside the scope of the discussion today. So Kevin, let's say that you have the ED calls you, they have a pneumothorax, they saw a chest x-ray, we go down and see the patient, and the patient looks very anxious. He's got increased work of breathing. He's tachycardic, tachypnic, and you glance over and you see the blood pressure is 90 over 50. What, what does the patient have? This patient has a tension pneumothorax. Okay. And what's the first step in management? Yeah, you got to needle decompress this immediately. How do you do that? So you insert a needle with a large gauge angiocath that's readily available into the second intercostal space at a 90 degree angle to the chest, just over the third rib. Yeah. Or you could also needle decompress in the area that you would put a chest tube in as well. That's also acceptable. In reality, if you're a surgeon and you're there, you can do a finger thoracostomy or place a chest tube just as quickly as you can do a needle decompression. But for the most... For the most part, if you're presented on an exam with a patient with a tension pneumothorax who's hemodynamically unstable, you're going to temporize them with a uh, needle needle decompression, and then place your definitive uh, chest tube. But let's let's get back to our non-tension pneumothorax. So uh, again, we talked about it briefly, but but how how are we going to manage? Let's say we have a clinically stable patient who has a small pneumothorax. Yeah. So in these patients, you can just observe it. Okay. That's again, what I like what we said. So we less, the general guidelines are less than three centimeters. If you have a patient with a, a spontaneous pneumothorax and it's stable on an interval chest x-ray and they're clinically stable, you can observe those. But let's say they're larger over that three centimeters or the patient's symptomatic. How would you treat that? Yeah. In this situation, do either a pigtail catheter or a chest tube. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, the trend is smaller and smaller. Pigtail catheters are very effective and they're very easy to play. So pigtail catheter is what I would do in that situation. If they're unstable? Yeah. So if they're unstable, you're going to definitely place the chest tube. Okay. And when, how do you make the decision uh, to operate? So if they have a persistent air leak for greater than five days, then you're going to need to do your VATs with pleurodesis. Okay. And that's an arbitrary cutoff, uh, but certainly a persistent air leak, they'll, you'll need to do uh, something of that with a blood back to me in general and pleurodesis. Again, also those patients with those are either recurrent or they've had a high risk profession. So they're a pilot or they're a Navy SEAL or they're a scuba diver. And those patients will need to be a little bit more aggressive about doing that VATS, the blood back to me and pleurodesis. Let's say let's say you do your VATs, Kevin. This is an advanced level question. You do your VATs and you don't see any blebs. Uh, what do you do? Yeah, so in that situation, you do an apical wedge resection. Yeah, so you still need to take the apex and do your pleurodesis. Good. Okay. What do you mean? You said you know VATs, blood back to me, pleurodesis. What do you mean by pleurodesis? Yeah, so there's a couple different types of pleurodesis. Typically, the mechanical is very common, so you can use a scratch pad or a bovie, believe it or not, and actually rough up the the lung. 
or you can consider a chemical where you put doxycycline or bleomycin or talc into the pleura and let that create the irritation. And then some people use autologous blood patches, and you can also use a pleurectomy where you actually take out the pleura. And then there's other things such as an indwelling intrapleural catheter. What's the overall goal? And there's also apical tents when you drop down that uh, parietal pleura. So what, but what are all the goals of all these different techniques? Yeah, so you want to abut the visceral and parietal pleura by causing an inflammatory reaction that scars them together. Okay, great. Okay, moving on to the next topic, which are lung abscesses. So uh, what's the most common cause of a lung abscess? Yeah, so generally this is from aspiration or poor dental hygiene. Okay, good. And treatment? So you start with the IV antibiotics and then plus or minus a bronchoscopy. Okay, and then uh, when do you consider surgical drainage? If the abscess persists for greater than two months or it's greater than four centimeters in size or it's thick-walled. Okay, so let's stick within the mediastinum. Let's talk about some mediastinal tumors, so high-yield mediastinal tumors. So what's the most common cause of uh, mediastinal adenopathy? Lymphoma. Okay. And how about the most common overall type of mediastinal tumor in both mediastinal tumor in both adults and children? So generally neurogenic. Okay, and where is that located? We talk we often talk about anterior, posterior when we talk about the mediastinum. So for where are neurogenic tumors located? Yeah, I like to keep things simple. I know the spine is posterior and so that's where all the nerves are, and so neurogenics are posterior. Okay. And again, that's the most common mediastinal tumor in both adults and children, neurogenic located in the posterior mediastinum. Okay. How about the most common site of a mediastinal tumor? Yeah. So anterior, and you have to be concerned about your terrible T's. And what are those? Your terrible T's for your anterior mediastinal tumors? Thymoma, teratoma, thyroid, such as an ectopic thyroid, or a terrible lymphoma. Yeah, it's cheating. I would never like to that terrible lymphoma for a T just to make it fit in a monarch, but whatever, it is what it is. So of all those things, thymoma, teratoma, thyroid, terrible lymphoma, what is the most common for an anterior? Thymoma. Yep, thymoma is the most common of those. So let's say you have a male who uh, presents with a mediastinal mass. What else do you need to look for on your physical exam? So you need to do a scrotal exam. Yeah, you need to look for te- testicular masses for a germ cell tumor. Great. And what for germ cell tumors, what are the most what's the most common type of a germ cell tumor? Teratoma. Okay, and we already said it, but again, where is this located? Anterior mediastinum. Okay. Okay. So there's a lot of, it's very confusing. There's association between thymomas and myasthenia gravis. So uh, can you explain that association and and how do we, uh, like a way to remember that? Yeah. 50% of all thymomas are malignant. 50% of these are symptomatic and 50% of these will have myasthenia. Okay. What about the, so that's a good 50, 50, 50, 50 thymomas, 50% malignant, 50% symptomatic, and 50% with myasthenia. Now, what about patients, flip it, patients who have myasthenia, what percentage of patients with myasthenia have a thymoma? So only 10% of patients with myasthenia will have a thymoma. Okay. Okay. So 10% of patients with, 50% of thymomas have myasthenia, but only 10% of patients with myasthenia have a thymoma. But interestingly, if you take all comers of patients with myasthenia, how what percentage of them with, will improve with a thymectomy? 80%. 
yeah, okay. Somebody smarter who understands this stuff better than me can explain to me how that works, but 80% of myasthenia patients will improve with a thymectomy. Well, let's say you do that, you perform a thymectomy, and you have a post-thymectomy myasthenia crisis. What is the treatment? Yeah, so you have two choices here. You can do urgent plasmapheresis, or you can give them IVIG. Yep, so plasmapheresis or IVIG. So that's treatment of post-thymectomy myasthenia crisis. Okay. Sticking again within the mediastinum or superior vena cava syndrome. What are causes of superior vena cava syndrome? So by far the most common cause is malignancy, which is 60%. And it's generally from small cell lung cancer and then followed by lymphoma. Okay. So yeah, you're definitely worried about malignancy. Most common small cell lung cancer. Also lymphoma is of a possibility as well. What are some non-malignant causes of superior vena cava syndrome? Yeah, so we definitely see some of this in vascular with our secondary to indwelling intravascular devices, such as central lines and tunnel dialysis catheters. You can also have fibrosine mediastinitis or substernal thyroid goiters or sarcoidosis. Okay. And how do we, how are these patients going to be present? Superior vena cava syndrome patients, how do they, what do they look like? Yeah, so their face is big and swollen. Generally, it can be half their face, it can be their whole face. They're going to have dilation of the neck veins. They're going to have arm swelling. They can get laryngeal and tracheobronchial bronchial compression. Okay, how do you diagnose SVC syndrome? So you start with chest x-ray, but generally you're going to have a CT with contrast plus or minus venography. Okay, and treatment? So you position the patient to reduce the edema. You can give steroids plus or minus anticoagulation. But for a patient with sort of a cancer-related cause, you're going to do an emergent radiation if they're very symptomatic. Yeah, this is like the one radiation oncology emergency. This is the reason why radiation oncologists have pagers, emergent radiation if symptomatic. Okay, so moving on out of the mediastinum now and into the lung. So let's talk about some lung masses, which are obviously a very complicated topic. And again, we're not thoracic surgeons. You're not being tested on the outside as a thoracic surgeon. So you really don't, you, a pretty basic understanding will get you a long way on the outside. So let's just start with screening recommendations. So what are screening recommendations for uh, lung masses? So they recommend an annual low-dose CT scan for patients 50 to 80 years old with a greater than 20-pack-year history who currently smoke or quit within the past 15 years. Yeah, okay. So low-dose CT, if you're 50 to 80 and you have that 20-pack-year smoking history, it is one of those that if you quit smoking after 15 years, your, your risk actually returns back to the general population. It is encourage your patients to quit smoking. Lung cancer is still the number one cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States. And what is the strongest prognostic indicator for patients with lung cancer? What's a bad prognostic factor? Yeah, if you have nodal involvement. Okay, so yeah. So nodal involvement is a bad prognostic indicator. Um, so lung cancer can metastasize, and it tends to go to uh, some specific regions. So what's the most common site of uh, metastasis for lung cancer? Yeah, unfortunately, it's the brain. Okay, where else Where else can it go? Yeah, so you can see it in the supraclavicular nodes, and you can also see it in the contralateral lung, and you can see it in the bone, the liver, and the adrenal glands. Yeah, 
Yeah. It's important to remember that they like to ask about that adrenal association. And most most often it's asked in, in, in the reverse is you have an adrenal mass that you're concerned that it's a metastasis. You want to make sure that you're getting a chest CT and looking for any lung masses because uh, lung cancer can metastasize to the adrenal gland. Okay. So Kevin, let's say you have a patient who has an incidentally noted solitary pulmonary nodule on imaging done for some other reason. So what's the workup for that solitary pulmonary nodule? Yeah. So a previous imaging is critical in the situation, as in a lot of situations. And so you want to look to see if they have any previous scans. If it's been stable or it's highly calcified, you can consider no further workup. Yeah, always compare that prior imaging. If it's been stable for years and it looks benign, then you don't really need to do anything. And your radiologist, there's a whole recommendation guidelines based on solitary pulmonary nodules. Your radiologist uh, will help you out with this. But let's say, in general, you have a, a solitary pulmonary nodule that's not stable. It's growing, and the patient is a surgical candidate. So how do you break down these patients? What are some general recommendations? Yeah. Generally, if it's been growing and they're acceptable risk and they have a low risk, you can consider a serial CT at 3, 6, 12, and 24 months. If they're intermediate risk, you can do a PET CT and a transthoracic or a bronchoscopic biopsy. And if they're high risk, you're going to do a VATS biopsy with frozen section and then lobectomy if malignant. Yeah, that's good. That's nice in general. So again, you're going to classify them as low, intermediate, or high risk. And if they're low, you, you may need some serial imaging. If they're intermediate or high, you, you may need to do a, a biopsy and then obviously a more definitive procedure, a resection, anatomic resection, given, of course, that they don't have any metastatic diseases as well. So like all cancers, you want to name it, stage it, and then treat it. Okay. Sticking with the topic of lung cancer, what's the most common type of lung cancer? So you're non-small cell. Yeah, that makes up about 80%, your non-small cell cancer. And then what else? What other kind of can lung cancer can you have? So you can have your adenocarcinoma. Okay. Or squamous cell. So you can have your squamous cell or, or adenocarcinoma in your non-small cell. So squamous and, and small cell are more central, whereas adenocarcinoma is more peripheral. There are some uh, associated syndromes. We call these those perineoplastic syndromes with these lung cancers. So let's say for squamous cell cancer, what's the perineoplastic syndrome that's associated with squamous cell cancer? This might be the most high yield thing in all of the thoracic chapter. It's the PTH related peptide causing hypercalcemia. Yeah, and uh, it's important to understand that mechanism. So it's not from it's not from lytic lesions from metastasis that's causing that hypercalcemia in squamous cell. It's parathyroid hormone related peptide that's causing that hypercalcemia. So sometimes I like to ask you about the mechanism. So make sure you understand that. What about the perineoplastic syndrome that's associated with small cell? Yeah, so this is the ACTH and ADH secretion. Okay. So ACTH is the most common, is actually the most common perineoplastic syndrome and it's associated with small cell and again, and as well as ADH secretion. 
Like I said, with lung cancers, you need to name it, stage it. Let's talk a little bit about staging a lung cancer. This is, if you're, this probably isn't one I would commit to memory, the TNM staging for the outside, at least. There are those cancers that you do need to memorize the TNM staging, breast, colorectal, but likely not lung cancer for the outside. But we'll go over it briefly. So, Kevin, what are the T stages uh, for lung cancer? Yeah. So, you have your T1 through T4. So, T1, it's if it's less than three centimeters. T2, 3 to 5 centimeters, T3, 5 to 7, or invading the chest wall or pericardium. And then T4 is greater than 7 centimeters or invading the mediastinum. Okay, and your end stages, nodal stages? Yeah, so really you just have one that's important here. And so it's the N3 if it's supraclavicular or cervical lymph nodes. Okay. And of course, a metastasis, either have your M0 or M1. We, we talked about it a little briefly, but they like to spread to the brain most commonly, but also the adrenals, contralateral lung or bone. Okay. So like we said, you need to name it, stage it, and then treat it. The staging of lung cancer is pretty complex and the TNM staging and, and the different stages are vary depending on what type of lung cancer, small cell versus non-small cell. We're just going to talk about some general principles with treatment. So let's so let's talk about those early stage lung cancers. So stage one and two, or those those cancers with that don't have a um, lymph node or distant metastasis. Uh, how do we treat those, Kevin? Yeah. So in this situation, resection or definitive radiation if they're not a surgical candidate. Okay. So yeah, for the most part, yeah, those patients are going to get resected as long as they're a surgical candidate. So how about locally it's advanced tumors? These are the stage stage three. So maybe local lymph node involvement. Yeah, so these patients can be resected after neoadjuvant chemo radiation. Yeah, so those patients will typically need neoadjuvant chemo XRT, chemo radiation, and then uh, followed by resection as long as they respond. An important indicator or important distinction is those stage 3B. So those either have a T4 tumor invading those mediastinal structures or distant lymph nodes and three lymph nodes. What, what do we do with those patients? So the stage 3B with T4 and 3 lymph nodes require chemo radiation. Yes, yeah, so chemo radiation is in general going to be the answer to that. Uh, there are some few caveats there. It's very advanced, but just for, the, for those, for the outsides, I would go with chemo radiation. And then stage 4. Yeah, so stage 4, you want to consider palliative resection versus radiation. Okay. Okay, Kevin, so let's say we have a, a lung cancer that invades into the thoracic inlet, and you have a patient who presents with shoulder and arm pain and Horner syndrome uh, or SBC syndrome. Uh, there's a name for that. What kind of tumors are we dealing with there? Yeah, so this is the classic pancos tumor. Yeah, so these are pancos tumors. So again, patients uh, with tumors that, that invade into the thoracic inlet and cause problems such as Horner's or SBC, and how do we treat those? So these are treated with chemo radiation followed by resection. Okay. So I think it does it for our thoracic review. So Kevin, you have a patient with a, that presents or is referred to you with a pericardial cyst. Uh, do you have to resect that? Yeah. No. If they're asymptomatic, you can find them at the right costobronchial angle. Okay, great. How about bronchogenic cysts? Yes. And you can find them at the... They're generally posterior to the carina. Okay, so pericardial cysts don't necessarily need to be resected if asymptomatic, but bronchogenic cysts do. Okay, that's the most common lung tumor in adults. Generally, it's going to be benign hematoma. 
Okay. And, and, and what's the pathognomonic finding on a chest x-ray? Yeah, so it's going to be popcorn lesions, plus or minus the calcifications. Yeah, you're looking for those popcorn lesions. Okay. And treatment? You don't need any treatment. You just repeat the CT in six months to confirm the diagnosis. Okay. What's, how about the most common malignant lung tumor? So that's going to be your squamous cell carcinoma. Okay. How about the most, and let's talk about children now. So most common lung tumor in children. That'll be your hemangioma. And for that's benign. So how about malignant? For malignant, it's carcinoid. Okay. What type of lung cancer mimics pneumonia? So that's your bronchialveolar cancer, and it grows along the alveolar walls and is usually multifocal. Okay. How do we treat post-pneumonectomy syndrome? You can use a tissue expander. It's placed in the post-pneumonectomy site. Okay, great. Yeah, post, you, to avoid that post-pneumonectomy uh, syndrome, use tissue expanders. Um, okay, last one. What, uh, con- what conduit has the best patency rate for cabbages? That's your mammary artery, your internal mammary artery, or the IMA. Okay, perfect. Okay, that wraps it up for thoracic abscites. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 abscite. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the absite.